Hi, this is Steffi and welcome to the Financial Fox Bitcoin series. During this series of interviews, I've discussed different aspects of the Bitcoin ecosystem and something that we haven't discussed yet, which is very, very interesting and important as a big part of Bitcoin is Bitcoin mining, an industry that has been growing exponentially over the last years, but also very controversial because of the cost of energy, the focus on the environmental impact of energy production and the debate about sustainability as well. So today I'm going to discuss all of this, exploring the challenges, the innovation and the potential solution driving sustainability in this dynamic industry, which is Bitcoin mining. Joining us on the show to shed light on the evolving landscape of cryptocurrency mining, paving the way for a greener, more sustainable future, is Fred Thiel, Chairman and CEO of Marathon Digital Holdings, one of the largest, most efficient and most technologically advanced Bitcoin mining companies listed on the Nasdaq under the ticket M-A-R-A. I hope that you enjoy this uh, conversation I had with Fred. I think it was brilliant. We discussed different aspects of uh, Bitcoin mining, but also we discussed AI. We discuss uh, how Bitcoin mining is creating opportunity actually for the energy landscape that we live in and is filling some gaps as well, creating opportunity at different levels. So I'm sure that you will find this conversation very interesting. Now, let's not talk much more, but let's get straight into the interviews. And if you're not subscribed to our YouTube channel, click the subscribe button now and follow us on social media to stay up to date with our news and interviews. Hi, Fred. How are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for accepting the invitation. Well, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Okay, listen, we have uh, a big topic to discuss, which is Bitcoin mining and is all the issue related with that. Very interesting industry, lots of challenge, lots of question, lots of innovation as well. But let's start with uh, how you got into Bitcoin? So I've been in the tech industry for 40 years and I sort of got orange pilled, if you would, by a former CTO, uh, chief technology officer who worked for me um, a number of years ago, who uh, back in 2013 said he was going all in on Bitcoin. And I said, what's Bitcoin? And so he orange pilled me. And fast forward to about 2015, 2016, I started really looking at Bitcoin. It had been gaining momentum and said, you know, okay, I'm a technologist. What problem can I solve related to Bitcoin? And one of the problems was that Bitcoin um, was traded on these islands of exchanges. You had exchanges in Japan and uh, Europe, uh, the US, other places, Korea, South Korea, where um, it was very hard to get uh, liquidity on and off those exchanges. And it was very hard to move uh, sort of your cash in and out. And so I thought, you know, the ideal way to solve that would be imagine building an exchange that could sit as an umbrella over all the other exchanges and essentially unify the order books of the exchanges and wrote a white paper and talked to regulators in the US, um, you know, because you, my belief was you could only do this if you were licensed. And uh, in the US, they basically said, you know, forget it, this will take you five years, you're going to have to get licenses in 50 states for money transfer. You're going to have to get all these other things um, and it'll cost you millions of dollars. And so 
I then went off to Switzerland and talked with the folks at FINMA, which are the financial authorities. They're the regulators. And they said, yeah, you know, you could do this in Switzerland. We're open to Bitcoin and crypto, but uh, you're an American company. We're not open to American companies and uh, you'd need a banking license anyway. And so um, I then went to Liechtenstein. And in Liechtenstein, they told me, yeah, we don't have any exchanges and uh, we don't have any laws about crypto. So what would it take for us to have a rule about crypto? And I said, well, it would be great if you could trade crypto. And uh, they actually created a law, the first crypto law in Liechtenstein, which allowed you to trade Bitcoin and Ether um, as foreign currencies. And so you only needed to have a Forex license to trade them. And so uh, you know, the first step was to build the operation as an OTC trading desk. And so we started doing that. And then uh, lo and behold, the uh, Liechtensteinian FMA, their financial authority came along and said, yeah, you know, I think you're going to need a banking license to do this. <laughs> um, by that time, a good friend of mine who I'd known for many years, uh, Merrick Okamoto, had been asked to become CEO of a company called Marathon Patent Group. And this is now early 2017. And in 2017, Marathon Patent Group was a patent troll, meaning they owned patents and they went and sued people who were violating those patents. And Marathon owned one particular patent of interest, which was a patent for a essentially a limited instruction set for voice commands for electronic devices. So think Siri, think Alexa. Uh, and they had sued Apple and uh, Apple had paid for a license. And then they went and sued Amazon and were paying lots and lots of money to the lawyers just to do the court case. And the company was running out of money. And so they'd hired my friend Merrick to come in as CEO and uh, look at taking the company into the Bitcoin space. And so he is a great financial markets guy. He understands how to take micro cap companies that are struggling and recapitalize them. Um, but he hadn't really scaled a technology company. And Crypto was kind of new. He knew I was involved in the crypto space. And so he said, hey, would you be willing to join our board? And so I joined the board in 2018 of what was then called Marathon Patent Group. Um, fast forward a few years, rebranded the company to Marathon Digital Holdings, had started setting up our initial mining operations. And in early 2021, Merrick decided he was going to retire. He had some health issues related to his back. And um, so the board and he decided that, well, Fred, you're the best person to come take over. So uh, I came out of kind of operating retirement and uh, stepped in as CEO in April of 2021. And I was employee number five at that time. Wow. And uh, here we are today, you know, kind of two years later, two and a half years later almost, and, you know, one of the largest miners in the world. So, yeah, well, and since then, it's been a marathon. <laughs> it has. It has. Well, listen, it's a very interesting story. Now, for uh, you know, some people that might not be so familiar with the Bitcoin mining business, so it would be quite helpful if you could give, uh, you know, use Marathon Digital Holdings as an example, or just explain how does it work, what Marathon sure. Digital does. So, um, you know, Bitcoin mining is kind of a misnomer in that uh, what really miners do is they assemble. Uh, transactions that are in the mempool. So these are transactions people have done that are waiting to be validated. Uh, and we assemble them into blocks and then we calculate um, a hash for the block so that the block can be added to the blockchain. And we have to guess essentially a number, a nonce. And once we get close to that number, uh, then we can win the block and then we can publish the block and it'll be validated by nodes and then it'll become written and when we write that block um when we get win that block we're paid by the blockchain itself 
a block subsidy, which today is about six and a quarter Bitcoin. And every four years, that number drops by 50%. And in May of next year, April, May of next year, it'll drop down by 50%. Um, and so we get this 6.25 Bitcoin for every block that we win, plus whatever transaction fees are associated with that block. And when you do a Bitcoin transaction, you pay a small fee. And so all the fees for the transactions in the block that we have built essentially uh, are then paid to us. So that's how we make money. We earn Bitcoin for every block that we win. Uh, now, what do we actually do? We operate large data centers. These are you know large uh, numbers. Today, nearly 200,000 of these Bitcoin mining rigs, they're specialized computers very expensive, that do one thing and do it very well, which is do mathematical calculations specific to the encryption algorithm, SHA-256, that Bitcoin uses. And so we have hundreds of thousands of these miners located in lots of different places, typically next to a large energy source like wind farms, and they operate 24-7, 365, and uh, just calculate essentially validating transactions and recalculating the blockchain. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting to see how the industry has uh, grown. I mean, the, upon a time, you could actually mine your Bitcoin on your computer. And, uh, you know, we got to the stage where it's not even thinkable to do that just because of all the energy that is uh, required. Now, Bitcoin mining is uh, a very capital intensive operation. So one of obviously the challenges is about having a stra business strategy that brings that sustain the business, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I was wondering, f first of all, being a public listed company that helps and then, uh, you know, is that really sustainable considering that, you know, the mining, the fees for the miner, they're going to be cut even more, energy cost goes up. So it's kind of like the economy model raises lots of questions. And, and I wonder whatever perhaps, as, as I said, being a public listed company, that actually helps to fund, you know, operation and to fund the business. Yeah, so... Um... You know, great question. It is very capital intensive. You know, you can essentially think of it as um, every exahash of capacity that a miner has. So that's a, a measure of the amount of compute power that you have. And miners typically talk about, oh, we have 10 exahash or 25 exahash of capacity. So um, it, it's how, how many calculations per second they're overall compute power can calculate. And we have 23 exahash of capacity today, basically. So if you look at um, you know what that costs to build out, uh, it can cost anywhere from you know 25 million to 50 million dollars uh, per exahash to build that out, depending on where you're located, the type of miner you're using, are you doing immersion or air cooled? Um, do you have to build out power infrastructure or not? Things like that. And so it's very capital intensive, and uh, it's a marketplace where you're either struggling to raise capital, you're either uh, struggling to get access to machines because uh, there's no availability, because there really is only one major vendor in the market today, which is Bitmain. Then you have MicroBT, Canaan, and some other new players who are much smaller. And so there are times in the marketplace when everybody's trying to grow, when there's capacity constraints and people are all trying to buy miners and they're just not available. Today, there happens to be a glut of machines on the market and machines are very inexpensive, um, but that could change at any time. The other thing is the availability of locations where you can mine can be constrained. So um, you, know, you may have the ability to acquire power, but you need to then build out 
the infrastructure. You may need to build a power substation. You may need to, you know, uh, build buildings or the containers where you're going to put the miners and do that. And that can take time, six to 12 to 18 months, depending on the location. Sometimes you can do it quickly. You know, we just built a whole data center um, in UAE in Abu Dhabi, uh, you know, we kicked off the project in uh, late January, early February, and the first site went live just this month. So, uh, you know, essentially, these things can go very quickly if you have good partners and you do good planning. They can also take a lot longer. But uh, being a public company helps in a number of ways. One, uh, if you have a public stock, meaning you can go out and sell equity to markets and you have enough volume in that stock, meaning there are enough people buying and selling your stock, then you can raise money either by uh, doing a direct placement, using a banker to uh, investors, or you can do what's called an ATM at the money offering where you sell stock directly into the marketplace every day via a broker uh, as a company. And we have been able to use ATMs because we have a very large volume of stock trading in our uh, stock every day. So there's a lot of liquidity. People can go in and out of the stock very easily if they want. Yeah. If you're a much smaller company and you don't have a lot of liquidity, it's hard for people to buy and sell your stock and the price will fluctuate quite a lot. So ourselves together with Riot are kind of the two big publicly traded players and there's a lot of liquidity in our stock. So it's fairly easy for us to raise money. It's a lot harder for the smaller players, even if they're public, because they can only raise so much money. And, and so, yes, it's, it's a big advantage to be public. It's a big advantage to be big also. And the percent, I think you nail it in the liquidity, because I mean, I have a, a background working with small cap in the UK, it's not US, but, you know, liquidity is a big issue. Uh, and, you know, there is volatility in the stock There is, you know, it's just not nice to build a business in those kind of situations. Now, one aspect that is very important and that you mentioned is access to cheap energy, because, you know, mm -hmm. it's... Uh, uh, at the end of the day, the profit that a company like you make is also about how much energy, you know, uh, how, how much you pay the energy. So the U.S. has always been a very interesting play to get cheap energy. And, uh, you know, then we see obviously China shutting down the miners. And, you know, if you look at other countries, uh, there is always energy is too expensive. Access to energy is too expensive. So. Tell me a little bit your strategy as Marathon in going to find cheap energy. And also, if you look at, we can do also this exercise, look at the map of the world and see where actually maybe could be a place where in the future, I mean, it could, it could be a good place to actually look uh, to expand operation perhaps. Sure. So, um you have to look at the, think of it this way, it's the energy is the biggest input cost to mining, but your cost of energy can vary not just by source and location, but also if you're able to uh, recapture heat from your operation and sell that, or if you own the power generation and you're making renewable energy, then you can generate renewable energy credits and you can sell those credits, which subsidizes your cost of energy. So yeah. for example, there is a large incentive incentive as a miner to own solar or wind resources because you're generating your own electricity. It takes a lot more capital, <laughs> I mean a lot more capital than just investing in mining if you're going to own your own energy. But you can also partner with energy partners where um, they can benefit from the Bitcoin mining because Bitcoin mining provides offtake. It's a big customer for the energy. 
and a lot of renewable energy. Uh, the problem is today, if you want to build a large solar or wind farm, you can't build it in a city. You have to build it away from the city, and which means you then have to have transmission lines or what's called interconnect. And the power utilities who own those interconnects, those transmission lines, they won't build power lines to your wind farm or solar farm unless they're sure you can a, build it, you can get it financed, and you have customers to sell the electricity because they have to pay a lot of, they have to make a big investment to build that connection. And so there's a chicken and egg process where a solar developer wants to build a solar farm. They can buy cheap land, but they have to have a customer for the electricity. And to get the electricity to the customer, they have to have an interconnect. And so uh, Bitcoin miners play this role of we can partner with a solar energy provider, for example, and take up, buy their energy, essentially, by proving to the interconnect operator that they have a customer and that their project can be financed based on this customer taking that energy, the interconnect will then build the interconnect. And so there's this very complicated relationship. And obviously, this all takes time to put together. Um, you also have renewable energy in the form of methane flare gas. So in oil fields, for example, or in landfills where you have garbage, you have a lot of methane gas. Methane gas is 80 times more damaging to the environment than carbon dioxide. If you can capture that methane gas, turn it into electricity, which then results in carbon dioxide, you're reducing the negative impact on the environment by 80 times and you're generating electricity. Now, that amount of electricity is a lot less than you would from a large solar farm, but if you can build lots of those small generation sites, you can aggregate them into a bigger hole. You can also have situations like we have in UAE, United Arab Emirates, where we partnered with the Sovereign Wealth Fund, ADQ, uh, who owns the energy company and the power distribution company. And they have a challenge because Part of the year, they have to use a lot of energy for air conditioning in the summer months when it's hot. Part of the year, they don't have to use that energy. So they have all this energy generating capacity that only gets used half the year. So by us being able to come in and use that excess energy when they don't need it, we provide more revenue to the energy company, which means they can lower the cost of energy to their consumers. And in Abu Dhabi, there's an interesting aspect, which is the heat offtake from the energy generation is used to create fresh water for desalination. And so they have to run the energy generators anyway. So they, they otherwise are just essentially throwing away energy. So we can use all of that stranded energy, turn it into Bitcoin. They get a piece of the Bitcoin that we, they get a part of the Bitcoin that we produce because we're partners. And in return, we get guaranteed low cost of energy. And so that's a way that you see this kind of um, symbiotic relationship between energy providers and Bitcoin miners, um, which also provides a social benefit to the people in the country because we're providing subsidized, essentially enabling them to uh, provide subsidized electricity to their uh, population. There are other areas uh, around the world where you have uh, the potential for geothermal energy. Africa has huge opportunities there. It needs to be developed. It's hugely expensive to develop, but it will eventually be developed. Um, you can find old nuclear reactors, for example, that um, were built 50 years ago that are still operating uh, they're not operating at full capacity where you can find excess energy at fairly low cost. Um, but I think over time, what's going to happen is Bitcoin miners are going to really become much more focused on generating renewable energy and becoming energy providers, using that energy directly for making Bitcoin and developing energy generation in places where today you don't have access to cheap energy.
Fantastic. I think uh, I think seeing Bitcoin mining as complementary to other yes. energy industries is very interesting. You mentioned oil and gas. I mean, I've been working with oil and gas company for a long time and I know the problem of flare gas. And I know also that renewable energy are not so sustainable because they've got this intermittent point where they need the stability that, yes. that Bitcoin can provide. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's great. Now, ESG has been a big focus mm -hmm. over the last, uh, I mean, decades, let's say, ESG practices. And uh, I just, uh, you mentioned already a few things, but I just wanted maybe to ask you if you want to tie it up, a uh, you know, a little bit more and, and tell me the implication of the ESG practice on Bitcoin mining and how Marathon Digital Holding is integrating sustainability into his business strategy, if there is anything else you want to add. Sure. So, um, you know, last year in 2022, we said we would uh, be fully carbon neutral in our mining operations uh, by the end of last year. And um, we primarily operate our Bitcoin farms either behind the meter, meaning on the site where there's a wind farm, uh, which we do in West Texas, for example, at our King Mountain site. That's a large 280 megawatt wind farm, and we sit on that site. Or we operate right next to a wind farm where we're taking energy, which is what we're doing in North Dakota. And whenever we're not using that wind energy and we are taking energy off the grid, the mix of energy in, of the grid that we're taking is predominantly renewable. And when it's not, we're offsetting that with what are called renewable energy credits. So we buy renewable energy credits in the marketplace. Uh, you're basically, unlike carbon credits, a renewable energy credit was generated when somebody generated uh, renewable energy. Um, they sell you the credit for one megawatt of renewable energy, and then you essentially burn that one megawatt energy credit when you use non-renewable energy. And so it's an offset. And so we're 100% offset in our energy generation, uh, energy consumption today uh, for our Bitcoin mining. Uh, we're always trying to find uh, better and better sources of renewable energy. Uh, you know, we're very focused at uh, evaluating opportunities in the world of methane gas because even better than renewable energy we're getting rid of methane there uh, we're also very actively looking at geothermal energy today and uh, talking with a lot of renewable energy developers to partner with them in the very early stages of site development so that we can primarily um, operate that way you know but esg has multiple things there's environmental then there's uh, society and so we're very focused on trying to establish our sites in locations where we can bring value to um, a town or a city, for example. And a lot of times you uh, build these Bitcoin mining centers, uh, not in places where they're big populations, but where there may be very small populations. And so if you can build a site somewhere where there may be a population of 300, 400 people, you know, if you can add 10 jobs to a town like that, that has a significant impact on the economy of that town. Uh, we're also looking at uh, potential operations in third world countries where by developing the site, developing the energy, there are much broader uh, societal benefits that we bring. And not only would we be creating jobs, but we're investing in infrastructure. We're actually building infrastructure. We would be essentially building energy generation to electrify parts of a country that don't have access to electricity today. Parts of the offtake, the heat offtake of that electrical generation can create also fresh water for people that today don't have access to fresh water. And so there are all sorts of societal benefits that Bitcoin miners can provide that are tangential to the mining of Bitcoin. We also focus primarily on uh, mining Bitcoin using now immersion technology, 
our, our sites going forward are predominantly immersion sites. Um, and what that means is there's almost no noise. And so what has been a noise complaint previously for people uh, is now gone. We don't operate Bitcoin mining sites typically anywhere near where there are people living. They're typically way off in the in the boonies somewhere where there's a big wind farm. Uh, and you know, if you've ever been at a wind farm, wind farms make actually quite a lot of noise themselves. The windmills yeah. turning. But um, and, and so that's you know primarily what we're doing from an ESG perspective. Okay, and um, I mean you mentioned it a bit about you know looking for new technology, looking for new source of energy. So if we are looking where the inv- the next investment, where investment is going for a Bitcoin mining business, where do you see that be directed? Yeah, I, I think it's different based on each company is a little different. Yeah. So if if you look at us, because we're not focused on one geographic location. So yeah. if you compare us to Riot, Riot Platforms is very focused in Texas and mining in Texas. We mine all over the place, Texas, North Dakota, UAE, and going further afield as well. Um, so for us, technology is about how do we lower the energy input costs? So we're investing in developing technologies around lowering the energy input cost. We're developing technologies around lowering the cost to mine Bitcoin by making the mining more energy efficient. So we made an investment in a company developing ASIC technology that will lower the cost to mine Bitcoin because it'll lower the energy use to produce the same amount of compute power. Uh, We're also investing in the software that operates our full stack. So if you think about a company like Apple, you know, they own the Apple cloud, they own the software on the phone, they own the ASICs on the phone. We're doing essentially a very similar strategy where we own our own pool, which we've built our software for. We've built our own firmware for our miners our own controller boards. Uh, we built now uh, some of our own proprietary immersion technology. And that gives us a couple of advantages. One is it allows us to optimize our business uh, to operate in any environment we want to. You know, We're very unique in one way in that when we started did our pilot operation for the UAE site, you know, that's a very hostile environment for electronics. You're talking about ambient temperatures of over 45 degrees centigrade, huge humidity, you know, very high humidity. Miners typically stop operating at 40 degrees C. So we had to develop technology that will allow us to operate in that environment without having people constantly touching the machines. And our pilot site ran for over 100 days before an engineer had to touch any machines, which means we really got the operations dialed in very well. So we're very focused on being able to run these sites in very hostile locations and build technology that lets us operate these in, operate small sites in hostile environments. That lets us do landfill gas effectively. It lets us do uh, methane at oil fields. It lets us do small solar farms at the edge of cities. Nice. Uh, and so it when you do that and you have this immersion technology, you're also capturing a lot of heat. What can you do with that heat? Well, you can heat buildings with it. You can create fresh water with it. You can do all sorts of things with that heat, yeah. uh, heat greenhouses. So we're looking at all of those ancillary businesses uh, that can benefit from Bitcoin mining. And so we're investing in the technologies to enable those solutions. Brilliant. And what about AI and cybersecurity? Because those are two interesting. I mean, artificial intelligence is something that 
could perhaps benefit Bitcoin mining. Cybersecurity is a threat. Is there anything that perhaps can be done or is there an area of investment for Bitcoin miners maybe? Well, there is an interesting convergence between AI and Bitcoin mining. So some Bitcoin miners have chosen to go the route of, you know, they view themselves as data center operators. Yeah. And AI needs data centers operating these LLMs, large learning models and inference engine sites. So some Bitcoin miners have gone down the path of we're going to build data centers for HPC, you know, high performance computing, AI systems. And uh, that's their way of going into the AI business. I think over time, those HPC sites, uh, it's that business is going to commoditize very quickly. And right now we're seeing this big kind of land grab going on. And I think uh, over time, what's going to happen is the big players are going to consolidate that business. And, you know, the the uh, opportunity will disappear. The opportunity we think is much more interesting is where AI and uh, blockchain interact. If you yeah. think about AI, they're, they're in, in the world of computing software, there is an old expression, garbage in, garbage out. If you put garbage data into a program, you're going to get garbage information out. Yeah. If you have an AI system and you put, I'll just call it, uh, the wrong data or imbalanced data into it, it will have a bias when it gives its answers yes. because it's learning based on its exposure. It's no different than if you raise a child in an environment which is very hostile, they will grow up with a mindset that has a bias about hostility. Yeah. LLMs and AI are no different. And so how do you ensure that the data that these LLMs are ingesting and learning from, A, is verified and true and is not biased? Well, if you record data on a blockchain where you can prove that it hasn't been modified, then the LLM can score that data with a higher, higher veracity, higher validity than if it was just scraping it off the internet. Because imagine if I wanted to have these large learning models have a positive bias towards some bad figure out of history, Attila the Hun, for example, then I could publish lots and lots and lots of data on the internet about how bad Attila the Hun was. And over time, these LLMs would think that Attila the Hun was a bad person. And that's an extreme example. But you could take something like a specific politician and you could put out information in places where you knew these LLMs are scraping data that human beings maybe aren't seeing. And so like any new industry, these AI systems, we don't know yet how to properly control and ring fence these systems so that the data they're being fed is accurate, unbiased, etc. Right. Um, and so like any new industry, go back to when the Internet started. What was on the Internet? Well, it was porn and drugs and things like yeah, that. Exactly, yeah. Today, it's today. It's a trillion dollar industry. Yeah. AI, you know, it's the wild, wild west. These systems are ingesting all this data. And uh, the only way you can really remove a bias from these systems is either to apply a rule to the system or unplug it and retrain it. So we believe that there is a large opportunity to provide technology that allows uh, people to issue data that could be used for learning engines that will allow you to do two things. One is validate that it hasn't been compromised or edited or changed, modified, adulterated. And you can also uh, create a system whereby the LLM to access that data potentially may have to do some form of validation or pay some form of fee. Because in the world of copyright, for example, you know, there are concerns today regarding 
well, if AIs could ingest data from books people have written and where the author would normally get attribution or copyright or some form of IP payment, these AIs don't do that today. So how are we going to deal with film actor rights? How are we going to deal with uh, authors and what they write? How are we going to deal with um, musicians and what they do? How are we going to deal with painters and artists? All of those intellectual property rights, even inventors, when they invent something, um, you know, if an AI essentially uh, responds with a solution to a problem for somebody that actually is a violation of a bunch of patents, but the person doesn't know it, Who's liable for that violation? It's kind of like the issue of um, self-driving cars, right? If a self-driving car has an accident and kills somebody, who's at fault? The owner of the car, the driver of the car, yeah. who wasn't driving maybe, or the car manufacturer, right? So, or the person who maybe was providing data for the auto-driving autopilot system. So we're so early in this industry. I think there are gonna be a lot of opportunities where blockchain, and uh, AI are going to really mix together. It's going to be quite interesting over the next five to 10 years. Super interesting, super interesting. I think you raise, uh, raise some really interesting points. Cybersecurity? So, uh, you know, the great thing with the Bitcoin blockchain is it's the most secure network in the world. <laughs> you know, it's yet to be hacked, so successfully at least. So the risk within Bitcoin mining is potentially for uh, quantum computers to have a, a crack, if you would, at breaking the encryption. I think we're still five to 10 years from that being a reality. In the intermittent period, uh, there's much lower hanging fruit than cracking the Bitcoin blockchain. Every single banking system, the password architecture is very easy for quantum computers to crack today. It's all based on asymmetric keys. In a former life, I was chairman of the board of a, one of the Europe's leading cyber technology companies around um, encryption. And um, we work very actively with Google, Microsoft and others to develop standards for quantum proof encryption. And I think you'll find that um, the banks today are much more worried about quantum computers hacking into bank accounts than uh, people are in the cryptocurrency space, just because the sheer amount of money in banks and the sheer amount of data that are in company systems that all use these asymmetric key systems uh, is much more valuable and much easier to steal, if you would, than trying to go after Bitcoin wallets. Because if you hack somebody's Bitcoin wallet, you have to move that Bitcoin somewhere. And if you read at all about how the police can follow a criminal as they move money along the blockchain, you'll know it's not such a smart idea to steal money out of a Bitcoin wallet because you could, you, at some point, you have to get that money A, off the Bitcoin blockchain and B, into fiat currency somehow. And so uh, there's a high likelihood you'll get caught. Whereas if you steal it out of a bank system, you know, you take uh, one cent out of everybody's bank account. A lot of people wouldn't think about a one penny error in their bank statement. Uh, most people wouldn't even notice it. And um, you, know, you could steal billions of dollars doing that. Yeah, 100%. Now, if we, if we move to the topic of regulation, obviously being a, um, a public listed company, you have got lots of things to comply with. Um, yep. Regulation is not so clear, not when it comes down to Bitcoin mining, but in general when it comes down to crypto. So how are you navigating this scenario? What also are your expectations being a U.S. company where the U.S. is, uh, pro let's say that, it's not taking a proactive approach to give directive and guidelines. So, you know, it's not, um, and then, you know, you see other countries doing differently. So I, w I will be interested to understand your views and, yeah, your point of view. 
Yeah, so um, I think Europe, Singapore, Hong Kong, other locations have done a better job of providing clear regulation. I think in the U.S., crypto uh, became a very political issue uh, because the fact that when FTX failed and Sam Bankman-Fried, he donated so much money to politicians that it became an issue that the politicians felt that they had to do something. He was a very large donor to the Democratic Party and to the uh, Biden campaign. They felt if they didn't come down hard on crypto, uh, they would be viewed as hypocrites. And so um, I believe that the mandate at the executive branch in the U.S. government was basically shut down crypto. Um, and the regulators have tried uh, using the limited tools that they have to do that. Uh, I think now you're seeing the legislative branch, meaning Congress, waking up and saying, hey, wait a second, you guys are overreaching from a regulatory perspective. You're doing all sorts of things. We need to have clear regulations that are mandated by law. And so we're, the U.S. is trying to catch up. But, um, uh, you know, while the U.S. political system sometimes can be viewed as, uh, let's just say, it has lots of checks and balances and uh, ensures that uh, not too much craziness happens because of those checks and balances. A lot of craziness sometimes does happen. <laughs> and uh, whereas it's sometimes much easier to get things done in Europe uh, because of the parliamentary system, the U.S. system, especially in the very polarized environment that the U.S. political environment is today, uh, can be quite difficult. But if you look at the a lot of the candidates that are involved in the current presidential election cycle that has been kicked off, you have people like um, Robert uh, F. Kennedy Jr., who has come out very pro-Bitcoin and pro-crypto. You have um, uh, Ron DeSantis, who's also come out pro-Bitcoin. You have Vivek Rishwami, who's also come out pro-Bitcoin. So you have a lot of people who are actually very pro-Bitcoin. If you look at studies uh, amongst um, people in the U.S., typically um, voters under the age of 40 are very pro-crypto. Voters over the age of 60 don't care. They don't know. Uh, it's this weird thing. And then the people in the middle are kind of, it really depends on their situation. But you have a lot of people in the U.S. who hold Bitcoin or uh, are very familiar with Bitcoin. And in the U.S., it's very different than in places like Argentina or um, other uh, countries in the developing or third world where, you know, Bitcoin is a way to survive because the banks don't work or the currencies. Look at Turkey, for example, you know, yeah. a huge amount of people in Turkey use crypto because the lira just is, you know, not, not very functional. So uh, in the U.S., it's really more, you know, yeah, I can use my credit card, debit card. I can pay with my phone. Why do I need crypto? It's more Bitcoin as an investment asset that people yes. view. And one thing the regulators are all in agreement on in the U.S. is that Bitcoin is not a is not a security. It's not equity. It's a commodity. And I think Bitcoin is very different from the rest of crypto. And I think also if you look at Europe, most of the regulations are around the trading, the holding, you know, uh, issuance, etc. cetera. Uh, most countries in Europe view Bitcoin as a commodity. It's just something people own as long as they can tax it and as long as they can track who's buying it, they're happy. I think I think you raise a very interesting point. As long as they can tax it, and as long as they can track it, then uh, then they are okay. Now it's good to know that you are you are positive. I think that's great. Also, as Marathon Digital Holdings, uh, uh, recently you have made an announcement for supporting Bitcoin core developers, supporting the Bitcoin ecosystem, which is great. And there is a lot of experimentation going on in the Bitcoin space right now as well. So I wanted, first of all, to have your views on that, on, you know, how the Bitcoin ecosystem is developing. And also uh, considering these uh, 
you know, program that you, you are doing to support the industry. What actually has to be done to make sure that we build the fundamentals for Bitcoin to grow, perhaps not just a mean of payment, but also more. So there is, you know, there is a full ecosystem that when all the Bitcoin are mined, there is still, you know, activity, there is still, you know, exchange, there's something that can be built on Bitcoin. So I, I think there, there are what I call two types of Bitcoin. There is the Bitcoin that people used for settling transactions, so the currency. And then there is Bitcoin, the investment asset. And today, primarily, Bitcoin is an investment asset. If you look at the amount of Bitcoin that is uh, sitting in people's wallets and is not moving, it's upwards of uh, almost 70% of the Bitcoin that's out there hasn't moved in a year. And so what that says is people view Bitcoin primarily as an asset that they want to hold. It's like gold. It's an investment. It's not a currency they're using for buying and selling things. And, you know, gold isn't really a currency today either. You know, if you think yeah. about it, people just use it as an asset. So how do you then create uh, an ecosystem where Bitcoin becomes more and more relevant? Um, well, for one thing, the Bitcoin network being one of the most secure networks in the world, if you can begin to store data on the Bitcoin network or store data that is validated by the Bitcoin network, it doesn't have to be stored on the Bitcoin network, but the blocks of data uh, that are stored at level two, layer two, in other words, can be validated using the Bitcoin blockchain. Then now you start building some very interesting ecosystems around things that require the security of the Bitcoin blockchain, such as personal identity, healthcare data, other personal financial data, uh, financial transaction data, corporate data, uh, all sorts of things, real estate data, etc. So you can build these layer two and layer three applications on top of the Bitcoin blockchain that take advantage of the high level of security uh, and the fully decentralized nature of the blockchain. So, um, for example, uh, systems around the provenance of art or the provenance of wine. It, it, people would say that's a very narrow use case. Yes, but it's the perfect example of where how do you want to be able to look and see, you know, who has owned this piece of art and is this piece of art that I happen to want to buy the original and you could follow that through. And, you know, people have talked about NFTs and an NFT is really just a digital receipt, but you could actually store things like using ordinals where it's not a receipt, it's the actual thing. And you could store an image of it, a validation of it, etc. So I think there are many technologies that will be built on top of the Bitcoin blockchain, which will give it relevance very much in the long term. If you think about the internet today, uh, you know, the internet has been in use for nearly 50 years at this point um you know it was originally designed by the military in the u.s and then it was so universities and, and people could share data uh, then sort of leaked out of the university world into the more public domain and uh you know it, it's built on a technology called tcpip and t today the vast majority of the internet still runs on something called tcpip v4 which is version 4 which is most probably 30 plus years old at this point. Even though you have version 6 available, there's no real need for people to use v6. They use predominantly v4. And the Bitcoin blockchain will be like that over time. We need to invest in core developers and, and help core developers because there isn't a company, unlike in the world of Ethereum and other places where you have these foundations and you have these very centralized groups that control the network, Bitcoin is fully decentralized and the core developers are volunteers and they're essentially paid through grants. And so we believe that the industry should essentially be funding 
essentially a grant system uh, like what we did with Brink to fund these Bitcoin core developers to continue to maintain the Bitcoin blockchain because yes, there are changes that have to be added to the Bitcoin blockchain all the time and things that have to be updated. We're gonna have to worry about things like security in the future. We're gonna have to worry about block space. We're gonna have to worry about all sorts of things. And so having a robust development environment where people are developing and are actively uh, able to benefit from spending time developing on the Bitcoin blockchain is very, very important to the long-term longevity of Bitcoin. And, and Fred, do you think that in the future, Bitcoin will be the dominant cryptocurrency? I mean, there is this word crypto that some people don't really like it, and some they like it, and they like a multi-chain world, and the future is going to be like that, and Bitcoin will be good for some use cases and some other for other. What, what is your views? Where do you stand? Yeah, um, so I think, again, like many technologies, um, be it search, social media, you have a bunch of companies start doing it, and eventually a couple of companies end up dominating it. And why is that? Well, it's the network effect. You know, people want to go where lots of other people are. Uh, if you have a cryptocurrency, it needs liquidity. To have liquidity, a lot of trading has to happen. To have a lot of trading, you have to have a lot of people using it. So what I think you're starting to see today already is a concentration, a consolidation around Bitcoin and Ether as kind of the two ecosystems. You're either building on Ethereum or you're building on Bitcoin. Yeah. These layer ones that were separate, Solana, etc., it's getting harder and harder for them to survive because uh, they, their ecosystems are harder to build. And so what some of those companies are choosing to now do is build on top of Ethereum or build on top of Bitcoin. And I think what you're going to see is it'll all coalesce around Bitcoin and, and Ether. Uh, over time. And, uh, you know, Bitcoin still is the biggest. It's all, around 50% of the market cap of all of the cryptos out yeah. there. So. And I think now it's getting even more interesting with all these new experimentation on Bitcoin, yeah. which, uh, yeah, is bringing new, uh, new opportunities, new development. Now, the Bitcoin halving is coming up. So your thoughts on the impact of on miners and also on the Bitcoin ecosystem in general? Sure. So uh, Bitcoin halving will happen in April or May of this year. What happens then is the Bitcoin reward uh, or rather the Bitcoin subsidy, block subsidy drops by 50%. So it'll go from 6.25 down to, you know, uh, half of that. If you think about it today, uh, if the average cost in the industry to mine a Bitcoin is about 16,000 US dollars per Bitcoin, and Bitcoin today is trading around $29,000. Then, uh, you know, the profit that miners make has to do two things. It has to pay for their people, and it has to pay for the equipment that they need to buy to reinvest in the next phase of growth. And so, you know, the expectation amongst most people would be that Bitcoin price is going to continue to move up as we get towards the halving, uh, depending on who you listen to. Some people say it may be 40,000, the halving. Some people say maybe 50,000. So if you think about the average cost today is 16,000 and you take into account that uh, there's more hash rate coming online, miners are continuing to add hash rate. And you know we're almost at 400 exahash of 
constant hash rate today will likely be, you know, uh, somewhere higher than that as we get to the halving. The price of Bitcoin has to be north of basically 35,000 for people just to receive an, a profit. And that's a very small profit at that level. So if the price of Bitcoin isn't above 35,000, then a lot of miners are going to be in a very difficult condition, especially miners that have debt on their balance sheet, miners that don't have a lot of cash on their balance sheet. And so again, this speaks to likely the large public miners having the best opportunity to survive. And by survive, I mean, until the Bitcoin's price moves up, which it typically does post halving, you can argue, does Bitcoin price move based on the halving cycle? Or does it move based on liquidity cycles? And you know, we don't have to have that debate right now. No. But I think um, Bitcoin moves not because of having cycles, personally, I think it's more around liquidity cycles. And based on where many people expect liquidity cycles to be the end of next year, we should, in theory, see significant rise in the price of Bitcoin from where it is today, uh, which would indicate that, uh, you know, Bitcoin mining will be quite profitable at the end of next year. But we'll have to see. Nothing is certain. We don't control the price of Bitcoin. You know, we don't control the, the global hash rate. All we control is, you know, how many miners we have and whether they're running or not and uh, what we pay for our energy. So, uh, you know, we'll have to see. But likely a lot of the unprofitable miners who struggled last year, who haven't been able to raise capital and continue to grow this year will be in trouble after the halving. And uh, the industry will either consolidate or those miners will just go out of business and global hash rate will drop. But what we are seeing is there are a lot of non-public miners who are growing. You have a lot of new entrants in the marketplace. You have a lot of mining starting to be done in Russia. You have a you know, whether that's done by the government or not, it's a different story. But you have a lot of non-publicly traded companies getting into the Bitcoin mining business. And so we'll have to see what that does to the industry as the industry continues to mature. The, the good news is the industry continues to grow. It happens to be quite healthy right now. It's actually good that there's limited access to capital because it forces miners to be very efficient uh, and not go crazy, which means there's a higher likelihood miners will survive in the next downturn. Fred, that was a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. It was really informative. And I think we discussed some very interesting point. And, and that also, I think it helps to kind of like demystify, you know, the things when people say, oh, Bitcoin consumes too much energy, you know, it's like it's going to destroy the planet. And, and actually, I think people need to do a little bit more research of what is actually being done and how miners are approaching, you know, actually running the businesses, all the opportunity they are creating as well. It's a very interesting and a lot of like interesting synergy with traditional energy businesses as well. And I think not many people know about it. So it was uh, it was really a great conversation. Thank you for sharing your insight with us. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be on.